So on Sunday mornings and on Tuesday evenings during Lent this year at Kenilworth Union Church, Joe and Katie and I are preaching and teaching a series called Gifts from the Dark Wood. And what we mean by gifts from the dark wood is gifts that don't look like gifts when we're experiencing them. They only look like gifts in retrospect. They happen at night when our lives are dark and they happen when our lives are entangled in a forest thicket. Today, uncertainty. And so on the third Sunday in Lent, of course, we have to meet the most dithering character in the Jesus story, someone we ought to meet every Lent and think about, John 18. Then Pilate entered his headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, So are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to you. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So are you a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into this world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate responded, What is truth? After he'd said this, Pilate went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against this man. But you have a custom that I release for you one prisoner at Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And they shouted in reply, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a bandit. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea from 27 to 37 AD, might be the most loathed politician in history. And that's saying something. That's a high bar to achieve. So this might not be entirely politically correct, but I want to make a qualified, provisional, reluctant defense of Pilate's honor this morning. Because it's true, especially the way John tells the story, it's clear that Jesus' trial in the Gospels is a kangaroo court. But if you look at the details more closely, you actually discover that Pilate exhibits some admirable rectitude. I only had time to read you the central vignette of this story, but in the Gospel of John, this story actually sprawls across 24 verses and about 700 words. In John's story of convoluted West Wing diplomatic intrigues, there are seven discrete episodes in which Pilate, the erstwhile peacemaker, scurries back and forth from his bench to his chambers, to the offices of the prosecuting attorney, to the crowds outside the courtroom screaming for blood, to the prison where they've got the prisoners locked up. Seven discreet confrontations with seven discreet audiences. This man will simply not give up until he has exhausted every possibility. Do you remember that film from 12, 13 years ago by Mel Gibson, The Passion of the Christ? You know who the hero of that a movie is, he's even better than Jesus. Pilate is the hero of that movie. He is so heroic in The Passion of Christ, according to Mel Gibson's telling, that one reviewer said that Pilate in that movie is Dr. Phil in a toga. 
He just wants everybody to be okay. Now, true, that's their, there's this feeble, flaccid query. What is truth, he asks, while the truth is standing there handcuffed in front of his very eyes. What's the truth? What's true? What's false? What's right? What's wrong? Who's guilty? Who's innocent? I have no idea. You know how Hamlet puts it in Shakespeare's play, right? There is nothing either good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. That is to say, your truth, my truth, we construct our own truths. There's nothing objective about truth. But I get that. Do you get that? He wants to keep the accused alive. He wants to keep the accusers pacified. He wants to keep his job. And he wants to keep all of these things in a situation which doesn't want him to keep all of these things. He can't have all three of those things. His dithering is infamous. But I get that. And so I want to make a qualified defense of uncertainty this morning. For instance, it comes in handy in the progress of human thought. The earth is the center of the universe, everybody said since Ptolemy, until Copernicus and Galileo came along and said, I'm not so sure about that. And even the Roman Catholic Church, which forced him to recant, eventually got around to agreeing with him in 1992. 350 years late and 23 years after Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. I'm not so sure about that, said Galileo. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we've been saying for 2,000 years. And then Jesus comes along and says, I'm not so sure about that. Maybe we ought to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Aristotle explained gravity by saying that objects fall to the earth because they want to be as close to the center of the universe as they possibly can be. That's their nature. And we believe that for 2,000 years until Isaac Newton came along and sitting under his apple tree, he says, no, I'm not so sure about that. I think gravity is a force between two objects, which is proportional to the product of their squares and inverse to the space between them. And we believe that for 300 years until Einstein comes along and says, I'm not so sure about that. I think maybe gravity is the curvature of space. God created all the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air in seven days until Darwin comes along and says, I'm not so sure about that. I think it might have taken a little longer, like four billion years. I think there is probably a worldwide market for maybe five computers, said Thomas Watson of IBM in 1943. And then Bill Gates comes along and says, I'm not so sure about that. Phones are for making phone calls, everybody said, since Alexander Graham Bell. And then Steve Jobs comes along and says, I'm not so sure about that. Every new discovery, every new technology, every new philosophy begins with a query, begins with uncertainty. You have to let go of the old to get the new to get the next, you have to let go of the last. So, uncertainty comes in handy in human thought, progress of the human mind. Also, have you ever thought about this? In your marriage. A little unpredictably in your relationship might be a great thing. This happened a long time ago. I was scavenging around, 30 years ago, I was scavenging around for something interesting and clever to say at my weddings. So I stumbled upon this essay called 
what women really want from men and what men really want from women. It was written by someone named John Leonard. I have no idea who that is, but it was a beautiful piece. I'll tell you more about it sometime, but I want to mention one thing today. He says, what women really want from men and what men really want from women is mystery because it is the enemy of routine and we need our dreams and our strangeness. Yes, the enemy of routine. He says, love is not perfect understanding. Love is surprised respect. I love that phrase. Love is surprised respect. So for crying out loud, don't see, be so predictable in your marriage and you're really don't come home at the end of every working day empty-handed when there's no occasion at all bring some flowers or dinner i had a friend who called his wife one friday morning at 11 o'clock and he says to her dress to kill and be ready at five o'clock and she wanted to say to him have you gone mad? We have three kids under the age of 10. I can't do that. But he'd already hung up. So she was game. She got dressed. She was ready. At 4.30, the kid's favorite babysitter rings the doorbell. At 5 o'clock, a car and driver come to pick her up. And the driver delivers her to Miller's Pub in the Loop. And when she finds her husband waiting for her at a table, there are two tickets to Hamilton at her place setting. I said to him, you are my hero, but I hate you. <laughs> so don't be so predictable. One guy said, I've been married to 29 different women in 30 years of marriage. Coincidentally, all of them have been named Mariana. He meant it as a compliment, I think. Uncertainty is good for human progress. It's good for your relationship and in our faith, right? I was so delighted that my friend Eric Elness, who wrote the book Gifts from a Dark Wood, described uncertainty as one of those gifts from a dark wood because that's our thing, isn't it? We're good at uncertainty. We own uncertainty at Kenilworth Union Church and also the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Episcopalians across the street. We're good at uncertainty. If you want implacable certitudes, this might not be the best place for you. You'd be better off among the evangelicals or the Catholics. No judgment either way, just an observation. We all got to be good at something. What we're good at is uncertainty. Now, there are times when I have some reservations about our uncertainties. American Christianity is sprawling and complicated, and so this is an oversimplification. But in American Christianity, in the last 30 years or so, do you know what churches are really thriving? The ones that are doing the best are the ones that have strict orthodoxies, close readings of Scripture, and high expectations. So in the churches that are, like Willow Creek, for instance, the churches that are thriving in the last 30 years or so, you might have to sign a statement of faith before you join, before you become a member. And this statement of faith may have things in it that you don't believe, like the virgin birth. And these new member classes at these churches might be 6 or 12 hours long. Ours is 90 minutes. We have one this afternoon. Come and try it out. In these churches, everybody is expected to tithe. In these churches, on Sunday, if you are in town, you are in church. And if you're not in town, you're in that town's church. You might belong to a small group in these kinds of churches, and that group might meet weekly. 
And people love this stuff. It gives them definite truths. It gives them an anchor in life. It tells them how the universe works. Different here, right? If you missed worship for six straight months, nobody would raise an eyebrow, right? If you didn't tithe, nobody would wonder about that. We have people making a million dollars here who give a $20 bill to the collection plate every week. And so sometimes, you know, I wonder about our uncertainties in the mainline church, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Kenilworth Union. But then when I stop to think about it a little more, I realize that's what's most attractive about us. We're not so cocksure about everything. We pitch a broad tent, right? So every Sunday morning, we have quasi-agnostics and quasi-fundamentalists sitting next to each other in the pews in reasonable equanimity until something really important comes along, like whether to floor the parlor with hardwood or carpets. Women should be silent in the church, it says in the Bible. We're not so sure about that, said the Presbyterians 60 years ago. Too late to be sure, but sooner than most. Homosexuality is an abomination in the eyes of God, it says in the Bible. We're not so sure about that, said the Congregationalist 30 years ago. Too late to be sure, but sooner than most. They said, well, gosh, maybe our gay friends and neighbors, our gay sons and daughters deserve the gift of family like the rest of us do. So paradoxically, uncertainty might be a gift. No one's ever seen God, right? The statement, God exists, is an unprovable hypothesis. By definition, unprovable. Also, the statement, there is no God is an unprovable hypothesis. So be very suspicious of fundamentalisms on the right or the left, positively or negatively, when it comes to God. Do you know the novelist Peter de Vries? His life kind of spanned the 20th century, 1910 to 1993. Actually, he's from Chicago. He's raised on the south side. He grew up in one of those Dutch ghettos on the south side of Chicago and in the southern suburbs where everybody's Dutch and everybody makes their living hauling trash like Wayne Huizenga, right? So Peter DeVries is one of my favorite authors because he infallibly makes me laugh out loud and also because he is an alumnus of my alma mater, Kelvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Peter DeVries was our most famous alumnus until Paul Schrader, matriculated there, and Paul Schrader was our most famous alumnus until Betsy DeVos became Secretary of Education. And so DeVos is very different from DeVries. No judgment, just an observation. So Mr. DeVries was raised in the strict orthodoxy of the Dutch Reformed Church in South Chicago. And he went to church five, five times a week. And his parents thought he would go into the ministry but it was not to be. He made his living working for Poetry Magazine in Chicago and The New Yorker. And he, Mr. DeVries and his wife, Katinka, had four children, two sons and two daughters. When she was 11, his daughter Emily died of leukemia. Some of you might not know Peter DeVries, but a lot of you will know the novel 
The Fault in Our Stars by John Green. The Fault in Our Stars was inspired by Mr. DeVries's story with his 12-year-old daughter stricken with cancer. Mr. DeVries once wrote a letter to J.D. Salinger, one trip through the children's cancer ward, and if your faith isn't shaken, then you're not the type who deserves to have faith. Yes. Unassailable certitude, either for or against God, is unattractive. But of course, uncertainty has its place, but then it has to retreat. Because you have to stand somewhere. Who was it said, be willing to die for your most cherished truths, but keep those commitments to a minimum? I think that's wise, don't you? So, keep those commitments to a minimum, but be willing to die for your truth. Ultimately, Pontius Pilate is an unworthy exemplar for us. That flaccid, feeble query, what is truth? What's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false? Who's innocent, who's guilty? He doesn't know. And that question, that feeble query, gives you a glimpse of what is possibly a hollowness where his integrity ought to be. He's a little soft, right? I mean, he reminds me of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. If you poked him in the chest, your finger would go in spine deep. He's a little soft. And because of that softness, he committed the most noxious judicial blunder in history. Some truths are negotiable. Some certitudes are obligatory. What is truth, asked Pilate, and we answer, the truth is that all human beings are children of God. The truth is that the strong have a sacred obligation to protect the weak, the least, the last, the lost, the lame, the leper, and the loser. The truth is that you never make false or unfounded accusations against innocent people. And the fact is that if you field false, unfounded accusations against innocent people, you bury them, right? You sit on gossip. You don't spread it around. The truth is that if you're ever called upon to defend the defenseless against the empire, if you're ever called to speak truth to power, and if that speech will cost you your job, or your reputation, or your standing, or your life, you speak it nonetheless because if you fall, you will always fall back into the everlasting arms of God and you will be okay. Those are our unassailable certitudes. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.